The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College, after which we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us, but how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration, reflect on past performances and projects, and keep us up to date with what's next. Stay tuned for the Performance Lab podcast. Hi there, welcome to the Performance Lab podcast. My name is Kyrie Ellison and I'm a first year graduate in the theater program at Sarah Lawrence. And my name is Becca Gemmon and I'm a second year graduate in the Sarah Lawrence Theater program. Today, we have with us playwright, librettist, and screenwriter, Doug Wright. Hi, Doug. Hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for hosting me. Absolutely, thank you for coming to hang out with us. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about the workshop you did with us today? It was uh, tremendous fun. Uh, we uh, Dan Herlin invited me to come down today, and so I was able to first tell you a little bit about myself and the work that I've done, but then, more importantly, uh, together we were able to craft two scenes, uh, and, and it was a, an exercise in finding the most banal dialogue <laughs> that we could, and then layering over that really dramatic, high-stakes situation that brought that dialogue to life. So it was a great way of illustrating that for playwrights, speech is only one mode of human behavior, and that our job in writing scripts is to try and document endless variables of human behavior that actors can then employ in, in constructing performances of our work. You had mentioned at the very end of your workshop with us uh, the, role, the idea that um, if you're writing an effective play, it's really just a list of ingredients. Is that what you said? A list of instructions. Um, for for the new group of people and collaborators who might pick up your work one day. Could you say a little bit more about that and how that pertains to your work? Yeah, we. it's tempting to think of uh, writing and writing a play in particular as being part of the same literary process as writing poetry or prose. And I always argue that it's actually quite different and it's more analogous to writing a recipe in a cookbook or a set of model plane instructions uh, because basically... The script is nothing more than uh, the characters are a list of ingredients along with the setting and the time. Uh, and uh, the, the written text, the dialogue, and the stage action are all a set of instructions that uh, smart actors will follow under the tutelage of one hopes a good director. And if that recipe is well written and uh, the director and cast follow it in an interpretive but responsible way, they will wind up uh, 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 recognizing and acknowledging and embodying the playwright's intention. And I think uh, directors from Arian Mnuchin to Ivo von Hove to uh, Neil Pepe and Greg Mosier all approach the same text in radically different ways, but I would also suggest in the same breath that they've all done really thrilling productions of you know a view from a bridge and achieved it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like a set of instructions. Do you have any advice for writers experiencing writer's block? And how do you tackle writer's block? Yeah, writer's block is is real and it's <laughs> vexing and it's deeply frustrating. And I think there are uh, two ways of solving it. I think if it's a plot problem, if you know what your character wants, if you know the world they inhabit, then if you simply ask yourself, well, given what they want and the conditions that they're in, what's the worst thing that could possibly mm -hmm. happen? 
And that's a great question to ask yourself to get out of a, a plot corner because uh, we do go to the theater to, in comedies or tragedies, see people under extreme duress confronting fundamental problems in their lives. So if you can just say, what is the worst thing that could ever happen to my character? Chances are you've got the next event of your play. <laughs> and the other thing I say to writers is, we tend to think of writing as a sedentary activity with your fingers poised over the keys. And the truth is we're writing all the time. And if I'm trying to solve a problem in one of my plays, chances are I'm, uh, my dreams relate to mm. that problem. Chances are, uh, my thoughts in the shower. Chances are if I'm walking the dog. Uh, writing is an activity that happens regardless of what we're doing in the physical world. And sometimes by simply walking away from the computer, you liberate yourself from that horrible uh, paralyzing pressure. Mm -hmm and the answers descend mm -hmm. if you just allow yourself to walk away. So sometimes, and it's hard for young writers especially mm -hmm. to learn this when you say, I'm gonna be responsible, I'm gonna write five hours a day, it's due on Tuesday. The hardest thing to do is to get out of your chair and leave the room, and sometimes that's the best thing to do. Yeah, it sounds like that begins to go into what might be part of your process when you write. And uh, you had this beautiful exchange with Dan in, in the workshop about how you uh, tend to tell historical stories. Would you mind repeating a little bit of that for us too? What, what, what in you is drawn to that? And how does that find its way out of you as you're working on it? Yeah, I think whenever you write a play that's predicated in history, we're all always writing about ourselves and we're trying to unlock the riddle of ourselves. So chances are you've brushed against a character in history with whom you have some affinity or feel you share some core struggle. Now, when you've written about you know, uh, the Marquis de Sade, that can be a very incriminating thing to say about yourself. <laughs> but uh, I would uh, suggest that the people we choose to write about usually embody our own struggles in a much more extreme or dramatic or excessive way. Uh, but even in that piece, I felt as a young artist drawn to provocative material and whose work had occasionally been shut down or censored, I felt I knew uh, what Saad experienced as uh, a writer who was largely uh, shamed and censored. And, and I became very interested in what happens when you deny a truly volatile, even incendiary imagination, mm -hmm. the only tools it has for uh, expression. And are you, in fact, creating an even more dangerous cauldron? Mm. And, and so, so I saw a very small, pretty benign element of myself in Saad, but Saad was such a baroque, over-the-top, excessive theatrical character that he let me carry it out in, in, in really potent, dramatic ways. So I think every time I've written about a historical figure, I've uh, seen myself lurking somewhere in them. Mm. And it's that, I would also say that, uh, uh, Really good plays about history, if they work, it's almost like an audience comes in and sits down and they see a beautiful historical painting and it's that character in their situation and uh, you know with a quill pen in hand and, and, and it's completely true to the historical moment. But if the play is working, at some point that beautiful history painting morphs into a mirror and we're all staring at ourselves. And that's the measure of a play about history that I think really works. Mm. Is there any aspect of history or any uh, 
hesitate to say character, any person in history that you're really curious about right now? Oh, that's, I mean, well, I'm working on a play right now. It's hard because it's almost always whatever's on your plate. You <laughs> yeah. know, that's your new <laughs> obsession, right? Yeah. And so I've been uh, commissioned to write a play of a very fascinating man named Oscar Levant. Mm -hmm. And your grandparents would know who he was. He was a comedian and raconteur and late night wit who appeared on The Tonight Show in the 1950s with great regularity. And he was really popular because he would always say shocking and incendiary things. And uh, he had been a celebrated pianist and was best friends with the great composer George Gershwin. Mm. And when Gershwin died, he found he couldn't play the piano anymore because he was so grief stricken. So he became uh, a very, very, very funny guest on 1950s golden age of television programming but always mourned the career that might have been. So he raises a lot, he was also in and out of mental institutions a great deal, and would often use his experience in those places as fodder for his late night comedy, mm -hmm. which in the Eisenhower 50s was pretty revolutionary. So he, he really raises interesting questions about who entertains us and why, what is the nature of celebration versus exploitation, and what is the connection between sort of uh, a, a performative genius and actual illness? So I'm knee deep in a play about him, and he's just fascinating to me at the moment. I know, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in Texas. I did, Dallas, okay. Texas. How did you get from Texas to this table? I <laughs> ran. Uh, <laughs> Texas was hard for a young gay kid in the 70s. Yeah. And I think at a very early age, I knew I couldn't stay there. And my, my visionary dad did a beautiful thing. He was not from Texas, but he raised us there and took a job there. But he knew Texas was a very particular part of the country. And he said, uh, he, uh, we were very fortunate. He was an attorney and made a good living. And he cut a deal with all three kids. And he said, if you go to school out of state, I'll pay for it. And that was the deal. So it encouraged all of us to look further. And wanting to be a part of the American theater, there are cities all over the country that offer rich opportunity, but I'd have my eye on New York since a very early age. And I think uh, it's, it's, you know, it's ambition is part of it, but it's also seeking safety, a community where you'll be safe in a neighborhood where, where you'll no longer be an exotic, but you'll be part of a community. And I think that's pretty powerful rocket fuel for any kid. Um, is there anything that you're reading or listening to right now that you find particularly inspirational? Oh, uh, that's a great question. This is really a, a, a perverse answer. <laughs> but uh, I've been working on this movie about a 1950s teen idol whose name was Tab Hunter. Mm -hmm. And he uh, always played like beach boys or sailors or soldiers really icons of 1950s teen masculinity. And all the while he was the number one box office star in America, he was having a very torrid relationship with the young actor Anthony Perkins. So I've been writing a movie about how it was largely gay movie stars of the 1950s that constructed our notions of mainstream heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. And so I was out at the Margaret Herrick Library in LA, which is the library run by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and I was going through their big boxes on Tony Perkins, and I found all the original daily shooting reports from the movie Psycho. 
So I was like pouring through, like, today we got through page seven of the script. You know, we, we got extra blood for the shower sequence with Janet Lee. And it's like, it's every little bit of minutia for every day of filming when Hitchcock and Anthony Perkins were collaborating on that, that sort of seminal movie. And so it, it's not really a book, it's not really a play, but in terms of the most fascinating reading I've done recently, it was just so engrossing and inspiring. It was like, it was like following their footprints as they mm -hmm. made the movie. So then that goes into, uh, you're a historical writer, or you have been. Mm -hmm. We don't have to pigeonhole <laughs> you into any area. But when you have that inspiration, Dan talked about this too, how do you know what happens in your body or your mind or externally to you when you know this is my next thing? How do you know? You know, you can have a lot of interesting ideas about, that's a really worthy subject, or that's a great theme, or I should write about that. <laughs> but none of that becomes real until the characters in the play start talking to you, and you hear their voices in your head. And that means you have to do it. Mm. All the lofty intentions fall apart, and it's just, are they whispering in your ear yet? And once they start doing that, you know it's the project you should pursue. Mm. That actually reminds me of uh, Elizabeth Gilbert has this uh -huh. uh, this theory about how ideas have consciousness, uh -huh. and they travel they travel the globe looking for someone to inspire, literally to inspire who will work with them or not. And when you get them talking in your ear, as she says, that's the invitation: Will you work with me or will you not? And they'll they'll linger with you for a while, but if you don't work with them, they say, "Okay, I understand the nature of this relationship," and they move on to someone else. It's beautifully said, and mm -hmm. it's absolutely true. Oh my gosh. What uh, thus far has been your favorite piece to work on, and do you have a favorite memory related to that project? Oh my gosh, that is such a challenging question, because you do tend to be fanatically in love with whatever's on your plate at the mm -hmm. moment, mm -hmm. but it would be disingenuous if I didn't say that the time I spent with the wonderful director Moises Kaufman and the brilliant actor Jefferson Mays at the Sundance Theater Institute in a little cabin in the woods mm -hmm. in Utah trying to crack I Am My Own Wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a morning when Jefferson came in. He'd been up most of the night reading about my heroine, Charlotte von Malsdorf. And he'd taken his nail clippers and a pair of shirt cardboard, and he'd made little tiny replicas of the furniture that Charlotta housed in her museum in Berlin. And he brought them in and set them up in the shape of a little room. And for the first time, I saw the entire play. Mm. And it was because of this remarkable, maniacal act of creativity that, that Jefferson committed in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I'll never forget that moment. Let's talk more about that. You had mentioned entropy mm -hmm. and how an artist brings that entropy into meaning um, and, and purpose on the stage, on the page, whatever it might be. Could you articulate that, that idea a little bit more? It's the, there's that horrible expression that I just reject entirely, <laughs> that uh, everything happens for a reason. Well, no, it doesn't. Our lives are happy accidents and catastrophes and a lot of planning and complete unforeseen conclusions, and they are the product of chaos and a very small amount of order. And it's the role of the artist to observe things in sequence or in relationship to one another or in relationship to other people or the larger universe that allows an artist to imbue those things with order and meaning. And that's the great comfort of art. And arguably, it's the great comfort of theology and philosophy. And I think it's why, in a, in a way, I always think art is the most enduring sense of order that we create because 
you know, uh, we have uh, relics from ancient Rome and literature from ancient Rome that's far outlasted the rise and fall of popular religions. And, and I think it, it, art is an organizing force that gives us direction and purpose and meaning in lives that would otherwise be untenable. So, so I think that's its, that's its function. That sounds so serious no. on no, a Tuesday no. morning. <laughs> no, I'm just like letting that wash over me because a lot of people here say like you're an artist because you're you're filtering the world around you so other people can experience it mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. and that just like it's like a lot to sit with, but it's yeah. really powerful and, yeah. and sort of brings context to everything that we're working on in a really nice way. Right. <laughs> well, one of the the longest lasting that we know of creation stories of all time is is in Genesis. Mm-hmm. The spirit of God, of the divine, is hovering over the chaos, the waters. And out of the chaos, the divine spirit brings order. Absolutely. And it's good. You know? It's like and, we're all um, tiny gods when we're yes. artists. Mm-hmm. It's like we're creating these worlds and we're creating these characters and sometimes we're punishing them and sometimes we're rewarding them. I guess we're all kind of Old Testament gods. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we are that, you know? <laughs> We're just having our way with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, what is one thing that you would like to change about the industry? Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic question. Uh, I would like, and I think we're at an interesting moment culturally. We still have miles and miles to go, but making sure that the stories told on American stages reflect the full diversity of our population and that our audiences become broader and more diverse so that we're not simply sharing those stories to a kind of white elite. And I think that has to do with historically who we have made comfortable in the theater and who we have not. I think it has to do with economic factors. I think it has to do with privilege and exclusion. And I think we need to broaden the tent and invite more people into the space. And I think that that as cer- some of our national politics get more and more divisive, I think those of us in the sort of artist left have attempted to counter that by becoming more and more inclusive. And I would say that it's, it's the biggest imperative right now. I always, I love asking this question of all fascinating people I meet, and I already asked you, but could you please tell us what you were like as a child? Oh, that was a great question. Uh, I was shy, and I, like a lot of gay kids, I was, uh, very accommodating and people-pleasing because I felt like I had a lot to hide and I also needed to the moment I met someone dissuade them from going on the attack or bullying me in some way so I became a little bit of a chameleon in that regard and I sat on a lot of very potent feelings and so I think in the theater I found a place where expressing those feelings generated applause and not condemnation so the theater felt like a safe place to start exploring my truer self. And I think that's true of a lot of us who become artists. Well, whatever our, our issues are, it's, it's some core difference in us that we first have to hide and protect, and then later we realize is actually the source of our strength when the theater welcomes us in and says, it's like Jimmy Durante in his big nose. He probably grew up his whole life thinking that was a terrible liability, and then in his career it became his calling card. And I think it's the same with us as children. We're so drawn to uh, conforming and fitting in that we attempt to conceal what makes us different, 
And it's only in adulthood, and particularly in the arts, that we realize that what makes it different is the source of all our strength. Is there anything else that we should have asked that haven't asked you? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Anything you're dying to talk about? (laughs) Yes. We're about to renovate my apartment, but we haven't gotten approval from the building yet. Mm. But we think it just came today, which means we have to hire a mover, find a new place to live, and empty the apartment by Monday. So, Doug, have you found a new place to live? And the answer (laughs) is no. So that's what's most on my mind, in spite of all our highfalutin talk about art. Yeah. That's like where my brain really is today. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of, that's life. Yeah, totally, right? The idea of, like, leave your problems at the door when you come into a new space is it it's not realistic. Like we have oh. things that affect us and affect our art. And I love that you're thinking about that. <laughs> 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 it makes me feel better about everything that I'm thinking These about. These little human problems. Yeah, no, it's yeah. so true. Yeah, it's, it's true. so true. It's such a privilege to sit inside our ivory tower and forget about them for a few hours, like yeah. I got to do this morning yeah. with uh, your class. Well, thank you so much for coming and thank you for speaking with us. It was really great to get to know you a bit more and, and pick your brain a bit about the process and about what you are interested in. Well, thank you both. It was really a lark. Thank you. And uh, tune in next time uh, for our next guest artist. Thank you so much for listening. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network in association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.sarahlawrence.edu.